What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 4040 Vision Podcast, the ultimate sports history pod where hindsight is 4040. We're so excited to bring you today's episode, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 4040 Vision Podcast, the ultimate sports history pod where hindsight is 4040. I'm your host, Colette Abdallah, and I'm joined by my co host, Osama Dahoud. What's up, man? How's it going? It's going well, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, for today's topic, we are talking about two of the most interesting characters in the NBA these days, and that is Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and their divergent destinies. So, we'll start off with uh, a little bit of backstory. So, we'll talk about the process, how these guys got their start in Philly, how they ended up in Philly, how things went right, and then, of course, how things went wrong, and how we got to where we are today. So, we'll cover this in depth from start to finish. So we'll start off with uh, Embiid's background. So Simon, why don't you tell us a little bit about how uh, Joel Embiid ended up in Philadelphia? Yeah, so Joel Embiid, born in Cameroon. He played for Kansas. He was the third overall pick in 2014. Uh, he missed the first couple of years uh, due to injuries. He played a little bit in year three, and that was that was pretty magical when he, like, first – started like he, he, he when he made his debut and he's hitting threes and he's doing chase down blocks and you're like oh my god this is why they've been waiting for this guy this is the most exciting thing i've ever seen and he just won over the love of the city on his debut he was putting his hands up and crowd was like oh my god we got the guy this is the guy we've been waiting for uh, and he embraced it he started going by mm-hmm. re- referencing the process in his tweets so just real quick praise. on that, I, I'm going to say this a couple of times, but I happened to be living in Philadelphia at the time, and I had partial season tickets for this season and season tickets for the next couple of years, but I was at that debut. And it was okay. awesome. Okay, what was OKC. that like? Yeah, I, I, I won't jump ahead. What was that like? Yeah, it was incredible, man. It was the process come to life. It was against OKC uh, the year uh, where it was just Westbrook, so we didn't really know what to expect from them, but it was gangbusters. I mean, it was the energy was great. It was just hype in the arena. And it was, yeah, it, we finally got to see like, all right, this is the, not the culmination, but the process is over and the, the rebuild is over. And then we're going to start from here. So yeah, it was, it was amazing, but go on. Was the chase down block on Westbrook, which became one of maybe uh, another chase down block he'd done on Westbrook. That was awkwardly their history. I don't remember their details, but they did have a little feud, and maybe it started that day. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I, I remember him afterwards refer- constantly referencing Sam Hinkie, who I think uh, had been fired either that season or the following season, um, even though he kind of brought them to mm-hmm. that place by intentionally losing for several years to acquire the best talent possible through the, through the lottery. And he would go refer to him, our, our father died for our sins, Sam Hinkie. <laughs> he always talked and referenced Sam. Even though he was gone, he gave credit to Hinkie, which was kind of cool. Hinkie was the guy that drafted him. I think by then it was um, it was a former player. The name escapes me now. But as Elton Brand, I think, was the GM at this point. This was like between Hinkie and um, Colangelo and then Daryl Moore. I think in the middle was Elton Brand was the GM. Okay. So, all right. Embiid gets there. He takes a couple years off because of injury. And then he gets his debut. He's second in rookie of the year. I remember the big controversy was between him and Malcolm Brogdon. Um, and Embiid only played like 30 games, so they wouldn't give it to him. Uh, and they ended up picking Malcolm Brogdon, which is fine. Nobody really cares about rookie of the year anyway. Uh, so then obviously he goes on to become one of the best players in the league. And we can get into that a little bit more. But the that same year or in 2016 i want to say they draft ben simmons first overall uh but it's really interesting how their backgrounds are kind of similar in how they got to the nba so tell us a little bit how ben simmons got to philadelphia yeah so ben simmons also not born in the u.s he's born in australia he played for lsu uh didn't qualify for the march madness tournament uh, they, they got eliminated, I think. It was the reason why. Or it was his GPA, one of the two. Oh, no, he wasn't they just, eligible they weren't good enough to get the in. Wooden Award because of his GPA. But, yeah, they just weren't good. Uh, we can get to that portion of it a little later. So he's the first overall pick. He got hurt before the season started. 
I remember that. And I remember him being very embarrassed when he talked about it. Like, oh my God, this is, I didn't even get to play. I hurt my foot right away. Uh, but I remember, you know, you, you saw glimpses of it at LSU. And he also came into the league when he debuted his first year. I remember they didn't win the game when he debuted. It was also, I think, against Oklahoma City. So, <laughs> well, strangely enough, I, I think so. I think I have that right. Uh, and he had a good game. And you could see the talent right away in transition. Uh, you could see how uh, this kind of like big point guard and then this big athletic, versatile big guy, you, you could just see that this was a, an amazing duo. And Stan Hinkie's kind of, uh, I don't know, his, his prophecy was looking like it was going to come true because you had these two generational talents. Yeah, and, and with Simmons, when when he got hurt that first year, I think he he still played summer league, and there was some you know sufficient hype being built up around him after that year at LSU. Even though there's some concerns about him not making the tournament, I remember that being a point of conversation. But people kind of dismissed it. But as you said, we'll come back to that <laughs> as, as a talking point about him in general. But yeah, in summer league, he looked like a different player. He was hitting hitting mid range jumpers. He was hitting turnaround jumpers. He looked like a great player just off the bat. Uh, and then he makes his debut, and we see the vision. Like you said, this big point guard, He's sometimes he's the biggest guy on the floor. He's a small ball five. He's doing all kinds of things. And yeah, the, the next thing I want to talk about is their progression from kind of this upstart to a legitimate contender. But I think you had something you wanted to add before we jump ahead a little bit. Yeah, so one other thing they had in common was there was slight controversy for the Rookie of the Year award. Ben Simmons won the Rookie of the Year because he played. It was the year he played, but it was technically his second season on an NBA roster. Uh, but they gave it to him, and I mean, he deserved it. He was great his rookie year. I just remember the the pettiness between him and Donovan Mitchell, who was a rookie in the 2017 season, and Donovan Mitchell wearing a T-shirt with the uh, Merriam-Webster definition of what a rookie is, walking up to a game like pregame outfit. Uh, that was so corny. So so petty, yeah. <laughs> it's not just petty, it was corny. Like it really soured me on Donovan Mitchell for a while. I'm like, there's a precedent for this. Blake Griffin had the same thing. I think he hurt his knee or kneecap or something. He missed his first year, came back the next year, and he won rookie of the year. It's not like it was a one-off. Like this happens a lot. But yeah, that it was just so corny. He I think it was an Adidas thing. I guess Adidas, you know, they wanted their guy to win uh rookie of the year, which makes sense, right? You know, but it was corny. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, so after that tanking season where they end up getting Markel Fultz as a result of that draft, and that's a whole different, you know, tangent. That's a whole thing that we can go and do. That's probably a podcast of its own, but just a funny, it's just, it was just hilarious to me looking back on it. The fact that with all of this going on and Bede, Simmons, Jimmy Butler, Brent Brown, Dr. Rivers, like there's still the Markel Fultz storyline, which may be the most bizarre out of all of them. But again, that's that's another episode. So they transition from, you know, the process to they're okay to all of a sudden being a contender. So what what drove that change from being an also ran middling team to being one of the contenders in the in the league? I think that they built a great roster around Ben Simmons. They got JJ Redick, they added Tobias Harris, they were able to space the floor and kind of complement his skill set, which was in transition, he had that Magic Johnson effect. And it's noted, it was noted that he watched tape of Magic Johnson when he was out during his uh, first season in the league. Uh, so, and he continued to be, I think, the guy that generated the most three pointers in the NBA. He had the most three point assists because of how great he was at finding guys and he was always on the break. And he was a threat in transition. He was very athletic. He'd he dunk if he didn't foul him uh, and he would find the open guy. So they built a roster um, that worked um, and he, and he wasn't a defensive liability he was an all defensive level player. So there wasn't really much on, on paper, at least that you needed to fill any voids. Like you have a point guy that plays point guard. He's like six foot eight, six foot nine. He's not a, def a defensive liability. He's an incredible perimeter defender uh, that you have a big, uh, to complement that, and you have shooters. So I thought it was, and he got this comparison early in his career, very LeBron-esque. You had 
a lot of great ancillary pieces to a generational talent. It was the comparisons were LeBron and Magic Johnson. And I mean, it sounds crazy now, but it really fit. I remember there was a game, I think it was in that 2018-19 season, where it was it was a big Friday night or Saturday night game. The Cavs are, it must have been 2018 because LeBron was still on the Cavs. And they came into town and it was based, I think Embiid was out and it was billed as like the king against the fresh prince. And it was, you remember that, right? Yep, yep. And yep. it was That's almost good. like good marketing. A, yeah. yeah, right. And it was almost like a passing of the baton from, you know, this generational player in LeBron who got a lot of Magic Johnson comparisons because, again, he's 6'8", six, 6'9", six, and he's running the floor and he's distributing and making the right play. And then, of course, Ben Simmons is, he looks like at least the kind of the heir to that title of being that point forward who's going to run the team and all that. And, you know, the best version of him was him with four shooters. And it really looked like this was going to be the future of the league and, and for Philly. So, but for a few years, they were a great regular season team, but there was some playoff disappointments before the big playoff disappointment <laughs> we can get to later. But what, what kind of drove some of these early playoff disappointments where they lost in the second round to, I think, Boston and then Toronto, the Toronto one was really dramatic, but what drove some of these you know playoff disappointments? I think that what Boston did really well was they exploited Simmons Simmons as a non-shooting factor. They against Boston in the regular season, he added he scored I think shot fifty four or fifty five percent from the floor. So they limited transition. They tried, fouled him in the open court because uh, and then they dared him to shoot. Um, they kind of did what uh, Giannis out of the Kumpo experienced early in his career where yeah like okay yeah. we know you're not that great of a shooter we'll build a wall uh and, and he ended up dipping his shooting percentage from i think 55 percent to around 46 to 47 percent for a guy who plays like a big that was a big deal uh and and you know bill even going up to that point his uh all his shooting percentages went down his free throw percentage was i think his first season 75 percent and then it just took this rapid dip. Not quite. Sixty percent. No. It was. It wasn't, it was what, what, how high did I make it? You went. You jumped up twenty points. <laughs> <laughs> he was always like okay, which is good enough, right? If you're shooting sixty percent or better, so he was fifty-six percent his rookie year, his quote-unquote rookie year, and then he hovered around sixty percent until, of okay. course, you know, this year, which is which is respectable, right? So it's six out of Maybe. ten. That's not bad. Maybe, maybe at LSU he was a higher. Maybe I'm misremembering that smaller sample size. Um, but it, but it was bad. It was bad for a point guard. It was bad for a guy that it, played point yeah. guard. It was always a concern, but it wasn't like it, it wasn't to the point where you would pull him at the end of games, which I think is, is the big change. Yep, yep. So, yeah. I think that it was of the belief. At, after that Boston series that, well, it was before that even, that he was shooting with the wrong hand. He was dribbling with one hand, shooting with his left hand. He should have been doing shooting with his right hand. His shooting form was off. Uh, but anyway, I'm getting a little off track. Well, I, what, basically what happened in that Boston series is it made them doubt between the two superstars if they could play together or not because of the lack mm -hmm. of spacing. Like you said, Simmons thrived with shooters. Embiid thrived without Simmons blocking up all of the other spacing because he basically kind of had two centers. One was just really good at passing and was fast, and the other was a traditional center that could shoot. Yeah, yeah. And before we jump into that conversation, I mean, I think the following year is a really interesting discussion because I think what that Boston series taught them was we need somebody that's going to take over at the end of the games, right? And obviously Embiid is a great player, but – it's tough for a big to dictate the the pace of the game. It's tough for the the big to initiate the game unless you're Jokic, which I mean Embiid is great, but he's not that type of distributor. He's not he can bring up the ball obviously and initiate the offense, but that's not really what you want. Like you want him to be the nail, not the hammer. And Simmons for all his great qualities w during the regular season when he's running and gunning and even during like the first 3 quarters of a playoff game where he's in transition and he's making plays that way, like that is, that's sustainable. 
But when it came to last five minutes, we need somebody that's going to slow things down, control the pace. They they couldn't they didn't have that on the roster. They were probably hoping it was going to be Markel Fultz, but he was struggling with his shooting form and all that in the background. So they go out and get Jimmy Butler. So how did Jimmy Butler, you know, kind of transform this team from again still a contender but not a true contender to with Jimmy becoming a true contender and a team that you thought could actually win the finals? What Jimmy Butler adds to any team, first of all, is a bleep you. Basically, he gives that bleep you yeah, factor. Yeah. For sure that any team that's competing for a title needs that's one but two he was kind of thought of himself as a clutch guy mr clutch he showed flashes of it in chicago next to derrick rose and in minnesota he was pretty good there too he wasn't amazing at it but he showed again high an ability to close down the stretch and that's why they traded for him in philly they knew that okay ben simmons is most of the game is going to be great for us defensively, offensively, but Jimmy Butler is going to be the guy who could put the ball in his hands. He can get to the line himself. Uh, he can make his free throws. He could make jump shots. It, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, he was doing what he did during that bubble run with the Heat and what he continues to do with the Heat, but he's doing it in Philly with a generational big man next to him. And so that was the year of the dramatic Kawhi shot, that, that baseline jumper in the corner that – bounced around a hundred times. So I, I remember that game was on this was at was on at the same time as Game of Thrones, the final season. So I think a lot of people <laughs> didn't watch it live. So I made the decision. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna wait <laughs> on Game of Thrones. I'm gonna watch this game seven because this was like I think it was the 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 week that they killed the Night King. So I don't know how big of a Game of Thrones fan you are, but were you watching the game live or are you watching Game of Thrones at that time? I was so I was at my parents' house. No one there watches Game of Thrones. Okay, uh, and <laughs> enough said. Right? <laughs> yeah, they have a projector though, 125 inch screen projector, uh, because it was the only thing that made sense. It's this giant wall, and like, what are we going to spend four grand on an 80 inch TV? It's like a 500 dollar projector and like a hundred dollar screen. It was great, but I'm watching it, and no one else is watching with me, right? And I'm watching like, oh, this game is about to be over, and Kawhi Leonard makes a shot, and I'm like. What? And I'm looking around. No one's paying attention. I just enjoyed this moment by myself. <laughs> this is one of the amazing shots I've ever seen. I couldn't. I, it was. I'm, I'm even now talking about. It. I just couldn't believe that that shot went in. I, and, uh, as a non-Philly fan, I'm just like, how did that, that fucking shot actually went in? What happened there? <laughs> if I remember correctly, it was. It seemed like it was heading to overtime at that point. Yep. Yeah. And it was it was an absolute rock fight of a game. I think Kawhi had like 40 shots. He's shooting like 30% from the field. No one was hitting anything. It was just like – and no one else on Philly other than Jimmy Butler. I should pull up the box score for that game, but I'm sure it's hideous. Everyone's shooting like 20% from the field. But it was really ugly. And I just remember like th the moment it happened, it really was like slow motion. The whole world just slowed down. It was like some video game, like not a video game, like some movie shit where they like he puts the shot up and they zoom in on the rim and it just like, doo, doo. <laughs> like spins around like in a toilet and then it just goes in and then of course the sound comes back and it was like it, it felt like that it really felt like that year because that was the year that Toronto went on to to beat uh, Milwaukee they obviously beat the the Warriors and they win the finals and. Aside from that being like a top, I don't know, top 10, top five playoff shot of all time, maybe a little bit lower because of the stakes, but just the drama around it was just so amazing. But it really felt like that was a huge turning point for the Sixers because, I mean, do you, do you think they could have won the finals? Do you think they beat Milwaukee? They they beat the Warriors in, the, in that year if that shot doesn't go in? Sure. I think Milwaukee just hadn't hit their peak yet. They obviously sh were shown to be going to be a – a contender for the next decade at that point. Uh, but I think that Philly was just more ready. That Butler piece was supposed to be the, let's compete for a title, let's win the title. And we all know Golden State was vulnerable. They uh, surprised Houston and, uh, you know, they. I think they steamrolled past, I think, uh, the Blazers, that same playoff. So they were missing Kevin Durant. And I think anyone who knew they would make the finals had a good mm -hmm. shot. Uh, beating yeah. the Warriors, understandably so, because those both of those teams were loaded. So it, it made sense uh, to believe that. So I think that even though those two teams would have 
given Golden State a really hard time and probably beat them uh, just because of the collection of talent designed to do so, right? Everyone loaded up to do that, and Philly understandably did so as well. So, I, I mean, uh, Toronto did it, um, and, and and they did it uh, pretty, pretty convincingly for the most part. So I think that Philly also... Uh, with Butler, and I, this, this was the year, man. This mm-hmm. was, I th- I thought so. I was like, that this is gonna Philly is gonna win it all. I really believed that with Butler, they were a very physically stubborn team, and they they kind of solved the the Simmons thing at least that year. Exactly right, and I, I'm still kind of stubborn. Maybe I'm a stubborn Warriors fan, but I still think if Clay doesn't hurt, if it doesn't get hurt, the Warriors win in seven. But <laughs> we, we haven't we haven't seen it. Uh, we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it yet. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I believe it as well. <laughs> sure, sure. Exactly. Right. Uh, but yeah, to that point, I mean, the Sixers, they were really built for the playoffs. They went all in. They get Tobias Harris. They get Jimmy Butler. Like you said, they figure out the Simmons thing. Like, OK, let's take the ball out of his hands for the last, I don't know, six, seven minutes of the game. Let Jimmy handle it. I don't think the Warriors would have had an answer for Joel Embiid and what he was bringing. And Philly was... They, they kind of reminded me of that OKC team from 2016 where everyone was just massive. And there was just long arms, long limbs, just size from, you know, every position. Because, of course, if your point guard is 6'10", then you're, you're starting off pretty well. But, yeah, it was just – I definitely think they, they probably beat the Warriors, especially a shorthanded Warriors team. How, how You were in Philly. How did Philly fans feel about not just that team but about the coach? Brett Brown, like Greg Popovich guy – did it, did the town feel like he was the right guy for it, or was it more like this team's going to do it itself? He was, he's a great guy, very nice guy, but it seemed like there was a lot of times where he was just blatantly outcoached. Uh, he seemed like the right dude for the rebuild because he's he's a player development guy. I think that's where he got his his career started uh, with the Spurs. He coached in Australia. I think he coached with the Australian national team, and player development was his calling card. So it makes sense that he's the guy that's going to get you maybe halfway up the mountain. But there was never any point, I think, you know, listening to Philly radio, talking to people where they thought that, you know what, Brent Brown is, is the guy that's going to get the job done. And obviously the Sixers felt the same because eventually they they canned him in favor of Doc Rivers, which is another guy that's only got – doesn't really get it done aside from, from one title. He's still living on that title from 15 years ago. But, yeah, they, they were not big fans of Brett Brown for sure. Yeah, so, as I was wondering about it, it seemed to be the only piece of the puzzle of that team I was wondering was a question mark. So yeah, yeah, because people would look at the roster and they're like, all right, we have all the talent in the world, but our coach is a you know subpar developmental you know developmental type coach, not the guy that's gonna gonna win you the final. So which which makes sense, right? So after that season, you know, there's some budding heads. Uh, Jimmy Butler decides. There's some stuff that's behind the scenes. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. But basically, Jimmy Butler asks for his way out of Philly, and he gets his way out of Philly. But do you remember what drove that, or what what some of the reports were of why he wanted to leave Philly? I I, I don't remember. You probably know know this better than I do. What I know about Jimmy Butler is he creates tension to drive you know motivation out of people he plays with. I don't know if it was like this early in his career. It sure as hell was the case in Minnesota. He thought that he was an alpha amongst a bunch of betas and was like, get me out of here. Get, send me somewhere where I can be an alpha and every I have other alphas around me. So I think he thought that would be the case mm-hmm. in Philly. Uh, but he outwears his welcome. Ask Eric Spolstra. He, they nearly choked each other <laughs> last year during a timeout at a home game. I think that he just kind of does this to people. Um, so, and I'm sure that that was a part of it, that him just kind of looking around and going, what are you going to do for me? So what, what ended up being the case? Why did he want out? I don't remember mm-hmm. that portion of it. In Philly yeah. Specifically. So the, the reports were basically that he was unhappy with the way that the organization was babying Ben Simmons, basically, you know, he, him and Joel Embiid are still friends. Joel Embiid still talks about how, you know, we wish I wish we kept Jimmy and they, they're they still good friends and all that because I think he saw the dog in Embiid. You know, and we saw it too. We saw the way that he fought like crazy in that, that Raptor series. I think he was hurt in the beginning, then he came back. And the way that he cried, like he was sobbing openly 
after they lost that Raptor series. And you're like, okay, like no matter what else happens with this guy, maybe there's injury issues, whatever, but like he really, really cares. And you definitely can't say the same about Ben Simmons. And I think at the time it was like, okay, well, maybe he's just a young player. Maybe Jimmy Butler's too hard on him, and that's why, you know, he's he wants out. But I think it's it's shown us, you know, a couple years down the road is that Jimmy Butler's usually right. <laughs> he's been right about <laughs> Carl Anthony Towns. He was right about Ben Simmons, and I think he made the right decision in leaving. But it was just such a bummer that that he left on those terms, you know. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think with the MB thing, and even Butler for that matter. It, it's good to see guys that give a shit. I think that's what we care about. Uh, Jordan was kind of the, the guy who uh, personified that, but it, that was the, with, with, with Embiid, seeing him, I think they, those ended up being pictures on, on Twitter that maybe got a little too much. Uh, but Twitter is a toxic place. We shouldn't use it as a barometer for how we actually feel. That, that, but that was, that was a big thing. You know, and going back to the Simmons part of it, I wonder if more will ever come out of how people felt about Simmons behind the scenes. Because it was well documented that when he was at LSU, it, it just didn't seem like his work ethic was the same. That's kind of the mm-hmm. my sense. When he was at LSU, he averaged 20 points a game, which is incredible. But then it was the idea that, well, what about your jump shot? It looks crooked, man. Maybe mm-hmm. you should work on it. And he was quoted in, um, I forget the name of the author, did, did, just his name just ex- escaped me, but tanking to the top, he said, uh, he's got to learn to shoot better. Chris Broussard asked him if, if he needs to learn to shoot better. And he said, there's nothing to say. I averaged 20. So, you know, this kind of narrative that he was a self-centered diva, more interested in making money and being famous and actually being a winner that makes a lot of sense if Jimmy Butler can can sniff that out. Yeah, and and he did, and I think this there with Simmons there was a series of red flags that kept popping up. Right, the first was the LSU thing, not making the tournament. I'm like, okay, we get it. LSU is not a traditional powerhouse, but or a basketball powerhouse. But if you can't at least make the tournament. Even if you're, and the funny thing is, the same thing happened with Markel Fultz. Washington didn't make the tournament either. So you can look at that, you can look at that in isolation and say, okay, you know, whatever, LSU's not that great. Maybe he just wasn't trying that hard because he knows he's a lottery pick. Okay, whatever. And then, you know, he comes in and there's questions about his jump shot. Like you said, Chris Broussard asks him, a lot of people are asking him, hey, you know, why aren't you shooting? Why aren't you shooting threes? There's no real answer for that. And if he's answering, oh, well, I'm averaging 20, it's like, Okay, that means you're satisfied with where who you are as a player. And there was no progression. Obviously, he became a much better defensive player. He was all defensive second team in 2019 and all defensive first team in 2020. So he's working on that aspect of the game, which is awesome. But the fact that there's no improvement in your jump shot, you're not taking one three a game. So all these things like in isolation, there's a way to explain it. But there's a pattern that you start to put together and you're like, wait a minute. Maybe this guy doesn't like playing basketball that much. Maybe he doesn't like the 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 quiet parts of it, the working, you know, sh- shooting in the gym late night, putting up a thousand jumpers, doing all this, thing, working on his, and then the free throws. That's the other big thing is like there's no improvement there. He's steady, and then he just falls off a cliff. So there is, like I said, it's in isolation. It's all explainable, but when you put it all together, it definitely paints a very accurate picture. Of, of who this guy is as a, as a player and kind of as a person, you know, off the court. Yeah. I, I, not to, about his, his persona off the court, he seems like a, like a cool guy. I don't know. He didn't really uh, put himself out there too much. I mean, he dated a bunch of famous women that he loved that, that life, Maya Jama, shout out, uh, Kendall Jenner, et cetera. Um, but yeah, the, the, that, this was just a huge, a huge thing. I remember reading uh, in that same book that if he felt like the person wasn't really worth guarding, if he didn't feel like they were going to be a challenge defensively, that he wouldn't put any effort. He didn't care. Like these little minute details that come yep. out from a mentality standpoint, you just don't really hear players say shit like that. That's mm-hmm. that's very questionable. I'm not the kind of person that looks in basketball and says you want to see 
you want everyone to be relentless Michael Jordan competitor, but at least don't talk like that. Like this is a a chore. This is your your freaking basketball player. What are you doing? Exactly right. Like especially if you're one of the upper echelon type guys, you expect them to work hard, just as hard off the court, you know, as they do in games. And that's I think that's a pretty realistic expectation. So after the you know crushing disappointment of that Kawhi shot, the next season is is the bubble season. The the Sixers lose in the first round. It's not really a notable season at all. They're 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 doing well. They're on a fifty game you know fifty win pace before the season ends. And the the following year, or I think actually part of the in that conversation or during that year and kind of leaning into the next year, there was a lot of conversation about the Sixers having to make a choice between Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And it became a conversation about, all right, there's not enough spacing. If, if Simmons is not going to be the, he's not going to work on his jump shot, then, you know, we need to treat him like a low rent Giannis where he, you know, you put him on the floor with four shooters and you spread the floor and all that stuff. And the big concern about Embiid was the fact that he, he couldn't stay healthy he was playing, you know, 50 games, 60 games. He's still around that range, but I think some of it is by choice these days. But there was some really, like, interesting conversations happening. And before I out myself as to who, who I was leaning towards, I'll ask you, just from the outside looking in as a non-Philly fan, who did you think the Sixers should have gone with? Or did you think this whole conversation was crazy? Yeah, I remember that discourse, uh, and it was really out there. Um, even after that Boston series, can you have those two guys together? And I understood that. I was in the agreement that it was really hard in a league where I think there were a couple of years where people were mindlessly shooting threes just because the math said to shoot threes, and you had like the Rockets shooting 53-pointers a game. Um so I, I also didn't see it working out long-term. And I liked Embiid, and I thought that they just needed a different guy to run the floor. If he, Because I, I also, at the time, was this guy refuses to shoot the ball. This is crazy that he refuses to do so. Someone else has to be able to do this. If the defense takes a dip in quality, so be it. But the idea that Jimmy Butler is gone and there's no, no one to close the show again, are you going to just wait for J.J. Redick to – run in circles for 45 minutes to get someone to shoot <laughs> He's the great ball. at that. <laughs> he is. He was. Um, so, yeah, I was Team MB. Okay, I'm going to throw myself on the sword here and say I was very slightly Team Ben Simmons at this point. And I'll explain uh-huh. why. I'll, I'll walk you through the reasoning. So, from an emotional perspective, from a fan perspective, Joel Embiid was the process. That's his nickname. He's the culmination of Sam Hinkie, he died for their sins, et cetera. So it, it would make sense from that perspective to go with with Embiid. He's a nice guy. Very, He's gregarious. He's like the life of the party. Ben Simmons is a little more quiet, a little more reserved. But he was durable. And he was younger. And it seemed like, okay, this guy is, is hesitant to shoot. But you look at the Giannis situation, you're like, okay, this is the type of team that we build around this guy. And – the, with Embiid, he was always hurt. You know, he he's still being hurt a lot these days. I mean, it's not affecting him quite as much. He's still not – you never would count on him to play 80 games. With Simmons, you're like, okay, he's younger, he's more durable, he's a great defender just like Embiid. So if you had to make a choice, you know, obviously I was like, it, it doesn't make sense to split these guys up because you have two all-NBA type guys. But if you had to choose, I, I would have – I was leaning Ben Simmons. I can't lie. <laughs> it's like it's crazy to think about now but i will i will embarrass myself and out myself <laughs> as, as pro ben simmons at that time you fool um, <laughs> yeah. that's how i feel now <laughs> it's i think but i i get it the availability portion of it matters i mean Embiid's contract was uh laced with one of those availability things if he played x number of games over a certain portion of the first half of his contract uh, he would get the full amount. It was like a hundred and eighty million dollar contract, something like that. Uh, but if he didn't wasn't available for a certain portion of it, he would get a little bit less. He'd take a haircut on yeah. mm-hmm. what was promised to him, and he ended up beating that because he was available in the postseason every year. He just had some meniscus and sore knee issues that they were very careful managing. 
but for the most part, I think we, we remember him being unavailable a lot and there were pockets of the regular season where he wasn't available. But I mean, credit to him, he was playing in the playoffs. Yeah, he was playing in the playoffs. I mean, even I mean, he still had some injuries in the playoffs. I remember, he broke his face at some point against Miami. I think that was like the last last regular season game. Uh, But it was definitely a conversation that was being had, and obviously there was people on both sides of it. And again, being in Philly and listening to sports radio, you would hear the the calls, the very passionate arguments on both sides about you know Embiid's great, but he's made of glass. Uh, Simmons might be kind of mentally weak or he's not want to shoot, but he's younger, he's healthy, whatever, whatever. So all of this culminates in the 2020-21 season. So they fire Brett Brown. They hire Doc Rivers, you know, famous playoff choker, Doc Rivers. And they're the (laughs) – you do a great Doc Rivers impression. I hope we hear it a little more today. Uh, But – they they get they get the one seed. They win forty nine games. They're they're the one seed. Everything looks great on paper. They have a great team, and they blow through the Wizards in five games. And then the they face the giant Atlanta Hawks, the uh, best team in the NBA <laughs> at that point. Uh, I say that with all the sarcasm in the world. I still can't believe that series happened. But they play Atlanta in the second round, in the semis, uh, in the conference semis, and everything just completely unravels. And you see the signs, right? They lose game one at home. They It looks like they could still win in five. They're in Atlanta for game five. They're up, I don't know, 25 at some point in the second half. And But this, the cracks were starting to show because they blow that game as well. They lose uh, in Atlanta – or sorry, they lose at home. Sorry, no, I have it all backwards. I'm sorry they lose a couple games in Atlanta where they blow big leads and it all culminates in a game seven where everything unravels, but the cracks were starting to show. So do you remember watching that series and watching the Ben Simmons experience during that series? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, Atlanta just kind of, I don't know, they were looking at them now several years too early with their young talent. And there were those, pockets where Simmons would go long periods of time without shooting the ball at all, without even driving to the basket. He's just at the top of the key. And it became just a, like a sore thumb where your star point guard is is offensively just completely invisible. And I think that's what led to blowing so many leads. It was four on five for the most part, where he's just out there doing cardio and he has the ball and he's giving it up and he's not shooting. He's not creating any offense mm-hmm. really. And I'll, I'll read you some of his stats from this series. So these are the number of field goal attempts for him in a seven game series. So he goes seven for seven. Great. Two for three. Not so great in game two. Mm, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, in a win though, they win by 16. Okay, great. Uh, game three, seven for 11. Again, they win by 16. Awesome. And then things start to really unravel. He goes five for 10 in game four. And then in games five, six, and seven, he takes a total of 14 shot attempts. Oh and he gosh. hits six. Oh my God. Right? He's six for 14 across three games. Like that's a quarter <laughs> for MB. Yeah. And of course, the, the worst part about it is his free throws. He's shooting you know he goes one for five three for ten oh for two two for four one for two and these are just it's just getting ugly and you can see the again the crack starting to show him starting to unravel and i was lucky enough to be in the building for that game seven i don't know about lucky but i guess lucky because it was such a seminal moment in nba history i think it's something that i can talk about forever because it's such a butterfly effect type type uh, game, but it was the the feeling in the building. It was so tense. It was a crazy crowd, and they were just like trying to will this team across the finish line. And I remember they were winning. I think for most of the game, it wasn't like a big lead or anything. But again, the end of game issues where Ben Simmons completely disappears. It's all on Joel Embiid and Tobias Harris, who's just not a killer, good player, or whatever, but. This is a team that needed Jimmy Butler 
or that type of player. And then, of course, everything comes to a head where at the end of the game, it's close to the end of the game, Ben Simmons looks like he has a wide-open dunk or layup with defensive superstar Trey Young on his hip. This guy, he's literally, literally a foot shorter than Ben Simmons. And no exaggeration. Ben Simmons looks at a 6'10. Trey Young is probably 6'1 with his, you know, because of his hair with shoes on. And he passes up a wide open layup, or a, a, you know, would have been a, a somewhat contested layup again by a guy that's 5'10, lays it off to Matisse Steibel. He gets fouled, goes one for two from the field, and that was the end of the game, basically. So before I talk about the, what the f- feeling in the arena was, what was it like watching that at home? Yeah, it was it, it was glaring. It was, that was open dunk. That was pretty no-brainer. I thought for sure that was an easy basket, and that was noticeable that he just gave the ball up. It, it, and the narrative had built. It was... It wasn't like we weren't self-aware as viewers already at that point that Ben Simmons was the numbers were coming out. Some of the numbers that you um, that you gave us earlier were out there, and everyone noticed that he was fading and fading and fading. And he had this opportunity, and he gave it up against the shortest, one of the shortest guys in the NBA, to evolve Matisse Thibel, who can't shoot. Also, so there was like it was a bad, one bad choice to another bad choice. Uh, wasn't the time for him to generate a three. It was the time for him to dunk on the smaller person. And and that was in real time incredibly noticeable that he had a Nick Anderson moment. For those that don't know what happened to Nick Anderson, 1995 mm-hmm. finals, Magic Rockets. Magic are up 20 points at one point throughout the game. Rockets are coming off of a long layoff because they swept, uh, I think, in the in the conference finals. And he has he gets four free throw tries at the end of the game to ice it and, and beat the Rockets and go up mm-hmm. 1-0 with home court advantage. He misses all four free throws. Uh, and this kind of, this is the, he was never the same as a, as a free throw shooter again. This is that same seminal moment for Ben Simmons where he has an easy opportunity to get two free points, maybe even an and one, because little Trey Young is not going to have any choice there. He's going to get dominated in that spot if Simmons is aggressive. Uh, and this was, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have more. You were there. So what the hell happened when you were there in that city when that happened? So I was I was on the opposite foul line. Yeah, I, was, I had pretty good seats. Um, I was maybe like 20, 25 or 20 rows up maybe. I had amazing seats. And I got to see a pretty good angle of what I was looking at. But so so all game, I mean, obviously coming in, we were talking about his free throw shooting and it being a concern. And we're like, okay, Ben Simmons is disappearing. So he got fouled a couple times that game, and every time he was up there, it was like a dad like watching a kid like on the bike on a, on a bike for the first time. Everyone's <laughs> like like it, you know too enthusiastic with the praise. who were like you know like cheering for him, but not not jeering him. And when he made one, it was like it was like you know the greatest thing ever. Everyone was clapping and you know hooting and hollering. So. People talk about Philly fans being brutal, but they were not brutal in this regard. They were like very, very actively trying to will this guy and build up his confidence. And it was, I'm telling you, it was a really bizarre situation. And then (laughs) watching that, like there's, you know, there's an anticipation when you see a guy get the ball like in the low block and he's pretty much wide open and you're like, oh, we're about to celebrate because he's about to, you know, jump up and just slam it down two hands and like get in Trey Young's face and do all that. Maybe flex if he does the N one. But the dude at that point was so broken that he gets the ball and we're like, oh, and then he just <laughs> lays it off to Matisse Thibel and he gets fouled and everybody's just like, it was just dead silent. Everyone was just looking around like, what the hell did we just see? You know, it wasn't the end of the game. I think there was like two and a half, three minutes left. So it wasn't the game deciding play, but it was a two point game at that point. And we would have been able to tie the game and go go on and hopefully win. But it's just it, – I'm telling you, it was such a bizarre feeling. Like it's a playoff game, game seven. You expect an insane crowd, but it was dead silent. It was just like, uh, what? <laughs> like what the <laughs> – what did we just see? And, of course, you know, they go on to lose that game. Atlanta gets waxed by Milwaukee the next uh, series, even without Giannis. 
And like you said, they're a couple years ahead of schedule. So after the game, do you remember what Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid said? I know they were a little spicy after it, but do you remember what they said? Yeah, so Doc Rivers was asked after the game a very uh, tough question to ask someone after losing like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is if Ben Simmons could be the point guard of a championship team. And Doc Rivers uh, famously said, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. That was sure. more Batman than Doc Rivers. <laughs> was it? I thought Batman was more like, I'm nowhere to hockey bats. <laughs> so Doc Rivers says, I don't know, which is, it's honest. It's a little too honest, but it's an honest, honest answer to the question, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he said some more. He said that he struggled from the free throw line. That became a factor in the series. But like that quote, I don't know the answer to that, was probably led to be like the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. Joel Embiid said, uh, quote, I'll be honest, I thought the turning point was when we, I don't know how to say it, but we had an open shot and we made one free throw. And that was also straining on the relationship because, I mean, it's emotional and both guys' immediate reflex was to point the finger in the other direction. They're like, I don't know if we could do this. I think we had a shot. It was kind of a little subliminal. There was an open basket and we did, and we passed it up. Basically pointing to Ben Simmons short circuiting. And that that was a huge deal. That The media made a mess of it. And I, I don't think a guy uh, needed, a, a guy like that needed to hear that after knowing that. I mean, no, it wasn't the reason why they lost, but in his few opportunities that he had, given that he was fading in the series, it was terrible. It it wasn't the only reason, but it was, in my opinion, the main reason they lost that series. Because Ben Simmons as a whole, yes. Yes, Ben Simmons as a whole. And that game, obviously, it it's it didn't decide it, but I'm sure it was so deflating as a team to watch that. And if you're Embiid, you know, you just put up 30 points at home in a game seven. You're hoping you had a 40 point game earlier in the series. I think you had a, a 35 point game earlier in the series. So he's given it his all and he's expecting his fellow superstar teammate to do the same, you know, at least give the effort, at least put shots up, at least try, but not, not to shrink in the moment. So I, I understand the emotion of it. Obviously, if you ask Joel Embiid, he probably maybe regrets it. Maybe not because they got Ben Simmons off the team, but I think in hindsight, you know, if if he doesn't say that stuff, maybe the the relationship gets fixed. Maybe Ben Simmons is just is able to come back from it, or maybe he's just you know broken from that series in general, and that was just the, the tipping point. So after all that, summer comes around. Uh, Simmons is basically holding out from the team. He's pouting. There's a lot of conversation about you know, was the team too harsh? Did they throw him under the bus? Should they have done better? Um, and essentially. What ends up happening is he holds out. He has a a mystery back injury, they say. And it becomes this really annoying conversation, to be honest, about mental health. And we're not taking him serious, his mental health seriously, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, obviously, to be, you know, this is an era where we take athlete mental health much serious, much more seriously than we used to. But it felt like, okay, this is a little much. What do you think? Well, even before all that, right, the holdout was a big deal. He's a, he was signed to Clutch Sports, and he was being advised to hold out to try and force a trade before the season. So he didn't report to training camp, and they started finding him every day that he didn't report to training camp. And this is one of those little nuggets that kind of gets lost in time. But he did eventually show up one day. Do you remember the clip that came out? He was playing, and he had his cell phone in his pocket in his shorts. And I'm going to have to be careful of my phrasing here. But essentially, <laughs> while he was running, it was flopping around. The cell phone was flopping around inside the shorts. I do remember that at training camp, right? Yeah, he didn't give a shit anymore. He just kind of showing up because he had to. It was costing him money. He's like, fine, I will just be here. for the And, and that's it. I'll just be here. I think yeah. the whole thing was handled poorly. Like the organization threw him under the bus a little bit. Mm-hmm. There was no backtracking yeah. of it, really or apology or any reassurance that they were going to give it another go. Um, and then Clutch Sports had this crazy idea because they did it with, kind of with Anthony Davis where they came mm-hmm. out with a press release and said, we'd like to you know, request a trade. 
So kind of a similar thing. He's being advised not to show up, get him out of here. And it was ugly. The discourse of it, even before the mental health aspect of it, was really poor. It was annoying. But I am, I mean, we, we can kind of get to the why this is still the case, but I actually understand the mental health piece of it, not because and we use DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love's kind of, uh, they are kind of the poster childs for opening that and being vulnerable during, uh, as a player saying, look, I have panic mm-hmm. attacks, I suffer from anxiety, I suffer from depression, stuff that you just would, hadn't heard from, from NBA players before. In Ben Simmons's case, I mean, look, he's a young guy and young guys are on social media all the time and it's all he'd see. Yep. All it is inescapable. And I remember Adam Silver was at the Sloan conference a few years ago or something like that. And he was just said, my players aren't happy. I have people texting me all the time that they're obsessed with what people say about them. And my stars aren't happy. And he didn't name any names. I don't think, know if he was referring to Ben Simmons or not at the time, because it was before that, uh, but it's a thing. It's, it's to some degree, uh, the, the exposure and availability to opinions and information uh, look at us for two blowhards, you know, anyone can hear this. Thank you for listening. Download, subscribe. Uh, and obviously for Ben Simmons, that, that was that was a huge part of it. It's hard to escape. Absolutely. And I think the social media aspect of it was a big reason why he wasn't shooting threes. Because I think he hit one in a preseason game and it became kind of a meme. And it was like, oh, Ben Simmons hit a three-pointer in all caps on Bleacher Report. And, <laughs> you know, everybody just had had their field day with it. But so I don't want to dismiss the mental health aspect of it because obviously it is painfully, painfully obvious that this dude was struggling with his mental health, with performance anxiety. We had the yips. This was probably one of the worst cases of the yips, like in sports, which which we've seen that happen a million times across different sports. But my issue with it was the fact that when he came back, he did a couple interviews after the fact, and he never took any responsibility for it. He never took any personal responsibility for his failings on the court. You know, you can talk about, okay, in that moment against Atlanta, he froze up. He got the yips. He was, the moment was too big for him. Sure. But can you explain to us why you never improved as an offensive player in the first four years of your career? Why has there been no progression in your offensive game from when you were 19 years old to 25? You know, and and that's that's the issue, right? You talk about these other guys, Demar Derozan. He's having these mental health issues. Kevin Love, you know, these are all great players that work very hard and they do their part and they show up when it counts. And even if they shrink in the moment, they're doing everything necessary to do it. You know, it's it's like Ben Simmons is like walking around with like a gushing wound in out of in his stomach, and we're like, hey man, you like, do you want to put a band aid on that? You want to put some pressure on it? He's like, no, no, I'm just gonna deal with it. You know, it's not my fault. It's it's the guy who stabbed me. So it's like, yeah, sure. You know, you're having that issue. You got stabbed or you're bleeding or you're not able to play. But it's like, are you going to do something about it? And he never did. And and that's the thing. So and, and so after all that, he ends up getting traded. He gets traded to Brooklyn. We think he's going to play. I remember we had a conversation on the SLS pod at the time about, oh, Ben Simmons. He's coming to Brooklyn. It's going to be him and Kyrie and KD and James Harden. It's going to be serious. And then, of course, you know, he doesn't end up playing. He teases us a little bit. And I think this season, or I guess last season, after the Atlanta thing, like we talked about how these guys came up together, Embiid and Simmons. And then after the Atlanta series, their paths diverged in the craziest way, right? Embiid goes on to become an MVP candidate. He has another playoff disappointment, which is fine. But – He's an MVP candidate, and Ben Simmons just goes the complete opposite direction. He just becomes a total non-factor, you know. And then it it happens even more this year where you're thinking again, same thing, Ben Simmons, KD, Kyrie, and he looks okay, right? Like, do you remember, like, how he looked earlier in the season? Like, do you think he was kind of coming into himself again, looking a little bit like his old self? Yeah, I mean, he looked fine physically, he, but he just, I mean, it looks the same. It looks like the same old guy who, in same thing. I, I didn't see a dip in quality necessarily. Uh, he didn't look sharp necess- at the same, like the, he was doing his thing, but he didn't look sharp. I'll say that. He wasn't playing a lot of minutes either. I don't think they were playing him more than 20 minutes a game. So I think they were worried about managing him with, 
And I don't know what they were diagnosing him with. I don't know if it was lower back or what they were calling Yeah, back it. injury of some kind. Yeah, so it, it was fine. I wasn't like, oh, here come the Nets necessarily. Yeah, I mean, they were good, but it, it was kind of in spite of him. It wasn't because of him. And, I mean, he was he was looking okay. I mean, he was averaging, I think, six points a game, which is nothing special, <laughs> obviously, or seven points a game. Uh, but in limited minutes, he's playing 26 minutes a game. And I think the fact that what really inspired me to do this podcast or gave me this idea was the fact that almost the same time, the same week where Embiid became the front runner for MVP, which I think in all likelihood he should be able to win this MVP. I mean, we're recording this on April 9th, so we still got a – this is the last day of the regular season. We'll find out in a couple of weeks who the MVP is, but more than likely it's going to be Embiid. But the same week that Embiid becomes a front runner, the Nets decide to shut down Ben Simmons for the season. So the question I have is, after all this, knowing everything that we know about Ben Simmons and Embiid, like what the hell happens next? Where does this go? Where do we go from here for both of these guys? Let's let's start with Embiid. Like, what happens next with him? What do you what do you think his ceiling is? MVP is uh, as good as it gets in terms of how you perform as a player to reach at least individually the pinnacle of you know how, how good are you at your job, and being rewarded for the best player in the league is definitely a suggestion that Embiid will continue to be you know, one of the five, six best players in the league every year. So I think he'll continue to be that way. As long as his body lets him, he'll play 50, 60 games a season. I mm-hmm. think it's more so competing for a championship is really hard to win in the NBA. I don't know if this James Harden thing will work. James Harden is hard. His playoff record's abysmal. I don't know. But at least Joel Embiid, if you want, if you ask me where he's going to be for the next five years, he's going to continue to be um, – an MVP candidate, perennial all-star, perennial all-NBA, 100%. Yeah, and he's he's 28 years old. He's played, uh, looks like he's going to play 66 games this year, maybe 67. Last year he played 68, which seems like his his uh, uh, ideal spot is somewhere between. He's probably going to aim for 65 because of the awards and stuff. But, yeah, perennial all-NBA, perennial all-defensive, one of those teams, perennial MVP candidate, and what another thing that we talked about is is his work ethic compared to Ben Simmons. We talked about Ben Simmons and there's no growth in his offensive game. There's no growth in anything really. And then you talk about Embiid who went from being this kind of immature kid who was out of shape. He didn't take it seriously. I remember after he tore his meniscus um, or hurt his meniscus that his – First year, not his rookie year, but the first year he was playing, I think later that week he was spotted like dancing at a, at a hip-hop concert. And people were like, wait, is he really hurt? Is this guy really taking it seriously or did they just shut him down? But anyway, he's gone from that. You know, He's gotten married. He has a kid, and he like takes himself very seriously. He takes his – he's in shape. He takes his weight seriously, and he's working his, his butt off. And you can tell. You can see it, obviously, in his game and the fact that he's not gassed at the end of games. And – then you compare it to Ben Simmons, obviously. And then the question again is, what happens with Ben Simmons at this point? What happens next? He's been shut down for the last, I don't know, 20 games of the season for the Nets. So what do you foresee happening with Ben Simmons? This is really complicated now. And I can't help but feel bad for Ben Simmons. Like Joel Embiid, obviously, Jimmy Butler, disciple, dogging him, all that good stuff. For Ben Simmons... He's not even injured. Like he hasn't on the court suffered anything in particular based on what we've seen because he's hardly played the last couple seasons. Something to suggest, oh man, he's really hobbled. He's going through it. I think, and he kind of alluded to this a little bit, is that mental health is what's causing this back pain. And there is there's a metal analysis out there that uh, mm-hmm. for I think it was done on like war veterans post post war that they'll yeah, have, have suffered an injury, they'll get shot in the leg or something, and post-war, they'll show signs of a limp or something like that. And they'll walk with a cane, or they'll have crutches, mm-hmm. or they'll just live with this limp, and they'll go through therapy and fix the limp, and it was all in their head. They're just like, oh, I got shot. I just, I'm, I'm still hurt. Yeah, Obviously, the medical term the, for that, I was going to say that the medical term for that is a psychosomatic injury. 
which okay, is a physical injury or illness that is caused by a mental disorder. So, yeah. So Ben Simmons, it seems I'm not saying Ben Simmons is a war veteran. He done, didn't do anything that crazy. All right. Don't kill me. Um, but he essentially has, I, I this is why I think is the case. He's mentally hobbled and it's hobbled his back. It's hobbled. It's causing him to just psych himself out. And he's like, I, I can't play. And I don't know if we'll ever see him play again. I see it in, in the show notes here, mm-hmm. and I agree with you. I don't know if he's ever going to play again, uh, given that he's not actually hurt, but he's psyched himself into being hurt. That's my, I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him. That's just what we see. It doesn't look like there's an actual problem that's basketball-related. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the interesting thing is he still has two years left on his contract, on the, the max deal that he signed at age 24. So he's scheduled to make $37 million next year and $40 million in 24-25. So I think that he'll stick around (laughs) as long as he can to collect that payday. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, you don't get paid if you retire. But if he's, you know, out injured, if he's on IR or whatever, it's the NBA, the the contracts are guaranteed. So he's going to get that money as long as he's an active player. So Maybe the the Nets try to just treat him as like a sunk cost next year because I don't think anybody's trading for $70 million worth of Ben Simmons uh, next year and then try to move him in that 24-25 as an, as an expiring asset, which is you know what, what teams seem to do with guys like that. So, But yeah, it's, it's very likely – I mean, I, I even asked the question last year. I was like, do we ever see Ben Simmons play basketball again? So I was somewhat wrong in the fact that he played this year in a, in a bit part role, but we never saw Ben Simmons be Ben Simmons, the one that we thought we were getting. So if he never plays basketball again, if at the age of 28, he collects his final paycheck from the NBA, is he a bust? Do you consider him a bust being the first overall pick and everything that's come with it? Ooh, that's a good question. I think Bust is strong. Bust means that you just never lived up to your pre-draft hype or what everyone thought you were going to be. For Ben Simmons, I think that there's a lack of accountability. I think that the the pre-notion before the draft that he had character issues seems to be true, that he doesn't think he needs to work on his game. It's really silly that you and I can sit here in our you know desks at home and know this. I think we do. I don't think we're wrong about this mm-hmm. at this point. No, I don't think we are. <laughs> um, so all, all of that was was true. But he did go out there and he performed. Like he was, I don't know if Sam Bowie was all NBA or or looked like this when he played and he was a number one pick over the GOAT. So, I, you know, Ben Simmons pl- played very well. I just don't think that he took the extra step to be that old because he was being mentioned in the same breath as Magic Johnson and LeBron James he didn't cross over to that like tier one. He was like always tier two in terms of the final product. It was, it was, it was great, but it wasn't excellent. It wasn't true greatness at the end of the day. So I don't think he was a bust. I think it's just the outcome is disappointing. It's sad and it's disappointing. And I think one day there'll be a really deep dive into this and we're all going to feel really shitty about how we felt about Ben Simmons. Yeah, I, I think there's different degrees of bust, but I think if if you told the Sixers before you get before you draft them that okay, you're gonna get three years of incredible play, you're gonna get an All Star level player, which he was. He's a three time All Star. Uh, or I'm sorry, he was a uh, yeah, sorry, three time All Star. And he's going to be an all-defensive player two years in a row. He's going to be rookie of the year. I think if you stop there, I think they would have taken it, right? They would have said, okay, that's cool. That's a, that's a hell of a deal because obviously there's a lot of guys that went, you know, in the top five that were true bus where they didn't make any impact on the NBA. And so, yeah, they take that deal. But I do think – like you said, there is that disappointment. I think that's that's the major factor. There is a little bit of that bust element because we got to see the potential that he brought to the game. We got to see the excitement that he brought to the game, that 
he really looked like a generational talent, which is not a word that you throw around that 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 easily, but he really did look the part. And that's the really tragic thing about this is that there's a lot of guys you think about Grant Hill, like someone like Brandon Roy, and the, the, there's a laundry list, a long, long list of NBA players that looked incredible their first couple years, but were just cut down by injuries, you know, ACLs, Achilles, blah, blah, blah. And the fact that you can't point to that on to, to that for Ben Simmons, there's no one thing that you can say, oh, man, because it, it's just such a blanket statement. Oh, if he was mentally tougher, he would have been a great player. Like, obviously, there's a lot of guys that are not mentally tough the way Jordan or Butler or Embiid are, but they're still making a living in the NBA and they're still playing well, right? But he's just – he's such, such an extreme case that he's such an outlier where the guy really looked – his trajectory was uh, – if you look at him after year two, year three, you're talking Hall of Fame. You're talking, you know, 10-time All-Star. You know, he's never going to be a scorer, but, you know, maybe he retires as the assist leader all-time NBA history. It's not a crazy thing to say in 2020. And I think, like you said, that's the real tragic thing. And if he cares enough, maybe he'll come back and be a bit player and do his thing. But I'm just – I'm not seeing any signs that that's going to happen. So Yeah, nothing that's happened to this point suggests it, it wouldn't be a shock because he's, you know, in his 20s. Uh, but, you know, we'll believe it when we see it. But otherwise – uh, like you said, it's some costs, all these other negative outcomes are what we're all mm-hmm. predicting. Yeah. And I think it's it's fair to say that he never loved basketball or he didn't love it enough to try, give it his all. You know, he was always in shape, but the, the lack of growth, lack of development, which is, you know, opposed to Embiid, who tries so hard and cares so much. He cares so much that he wants you to think he doesn't care. You know what I'm saying? Like he has... <laughs> He does those uh, those interviews. Oh, you know, I don't, I don't care about MVP. I don't care about that. It's like, yeah, you do. <laughs> and it's okay to. It's okay to be obsessed with it because nobody wants to be like the guy that's obsessed with individual awards and all that. But it's a good sign that there's that competitive fire. And, yeah, I, I think this, this podcast could be titled The Tragedy of Ben Simmons. Um, it won't be called that because – you know, there's other factors at play here, but you know, <laughs> it's not it is a tragedy. Of, it's not the tragedy of Macbeth. <laughs> it, yeah, it reads like a Greek tragedy, man. He flew too close to the sun, and he his wings burned off, and he lost his free throw. He lost his free throw. He lost his jump shot, and lost his confidence, and he was never the same after that. So, and the sun was Trey Young apparently because he got to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, oh so that, we can't that's get better than that. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. Shout out Trey Young for ruining Ben Simmons' career. Uh, but yeah, that's it for our show. Appreciate your time today, Sama. Thank you all for listening. Please make sure to like and subscribe and leave a review to our podcast wherever you're listening to this. Uh, we're on Spotify, Anchor, all that good stuff. Apple Podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. Uh, and Twitter at 4040 Vision Pod. We're also on TikTok at 4040 Vision Pod. And we're also on YouTube at the 4040 Vision Podcast. So we're everywhere. We're omnipresent. So come find us. Come tune into our stuff. Let us know what you think. Leave us some feedback. Leave us a review. And yeah, thank you for your time, everybody. Peace out, y'all. Thanks, everyone.